Hello and welcome to Kerrang! Back Issues. I'm your host Stephen and this week we will be looking at issue number 531, February the 4th, 1995, pounds. Well, Kerrang! have gone and done it. They've removed the posters from this week's issue and they've removed them for the foreseeable future. You'll hear a little bit more about that from the swift word from the editor with Phil Alexander. I will get to that in a moment. The cover stars for this week are Thunder. The return of the Cockney Rabble, Thunder Crack Up, plus ACDC for Donington, Metallica Shocker, Ice Hockey Delays New LP, Faith No More exclusive UK tour details, plus Ugly Kid Joe, Led Zeppelin, Terrorvision, Monster Magnet, L7, Live, Faceless Nurks or Post Grunge Gurus, and The Heaviest Tour on Earth, Full Face Ripping US Report. If you would like to get in contact with us here at Karangbeck Issues, we can be contacted via Instagram, Karangbeck Issues, Twitter, Karangpod, and email karangbackissues at gmail.com. And if you would like to leave us a review on Apple Music or um, Spotify, that would be fantastic and no problems if not. What really, really made me laugh this week, um, he's not really someone that I actually follow on Twitter, is James Blunt, the singer, the pop singer, I know. Um, he's not someone I follow, but he is hilarious. He, every time I see anything that he tweets, he cracks me up. So because of the whole Neil Young asking to have his music taken off of Spotify because he disagrees with Joe Rogan's podcast, the anti-vax malarkey that's been going on, you know, whatever's been going on there. So uh, James Blunt tweeted this week and he said, Dear Spotify, um, if you don't take Joe Rogan's podcast down, then I'll be forced to release more music onto your platform. Very good. Very funny, James Blunt. So let's begin this week with a swift word from the editor. It's another week of frenzied ferreting. Yeah, as we kiss goodbye to the arse end of January and move into the second month of 95, it's all systems go when it comes to all things hard and heavy. Right now, the likes of Caius, Live, L7 and Killing Joke are all out there spanking plank, while Queensryche, Headswim, Sensor and more are all set to hit the road. What's more, there's been an avalanche of quality hard rock LPs unleashed recently. Van Halen, Thunder and in this issue, Extreme have put classy hard rock back on the map. This issue, Kerrang! catches up with Thunder to examine the trials and tribulations that threaten to split one of Britain's most loved hard rock troops. In time-honoured Kerrang! tradition, this week's cover story probes the truth behind the traumas and brings you the real story of Thunder behind closed doors. Check it out on page 34. Also this week, we bring you the latest up-to-the-minute news on Metallica's new LP, Led Zeppelin 95, ACDC's future plans on Faith No More's UK club dates. These are just some of the stories that you'll find lurking in this week's packed pages of your favourite rock read. What's more, there's tons on L7, Wall, Monster Magnet, Slayer, Terrorvision and Live. You may also notice that we've changed one of the key features of the magazine. Yep, we've removed our poster power section. Why? Well, as we've said time and time again, Kerrang! is your magazine and we've taken your comments into consideration. You wanted less pics and more to read, so you've got it. Have no fear, however, as we ain't doing away with posters altogether. Nope, as of this week, Kerrang! will contain two killer posters in the centre of the magazine, which will feature the hottest new shots we can muster. The kind of shots that other magazines would kill for. Rest assured, we'll also carry on taking note of your comments. So get scribbling, until next week, stay clean. Phil Alexander, Editor. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7... Yeah!
We start this week as we do every week. Mayhem, the hottest news in metal first. Thanks a million, Faith No More's fantastic return. Faith No More are set to announce details of their forthcoming UK tour and Kerrang! can reveal that the band's first Brit date since the 1993 Phoenix Festival will be the ultimate in intimate, with nearly all shows to take place at venues with less than a thousand capacity. They mark the start of a massive 18-month world tour and will see the debut shows with the band of new Axemen Dean Mentor. These gigs will be followed up by summer festival dates and later in the year a full UK tour of bigger venues. A spokesman for the band told Mayhem Faith No More wanted to kick off their tour with some small UK shows as a thank you to their fans. They should be great. Look out for the dates, strongly rumoured to include a one-off secret gig coming soon in Kerrang. Mayhem caught up with Mentor and his new Faith No More colleagues this week for some exclusive words. I've been playing guitar since I was 12 or 13, says Mentor. I never took any lessons or anything. I initially started working with Faith No More in their road crew during the Angel Dust tour. I was working for Roddy. I do all sorts of sequencing and hard disk recording stuff. Roddy got my name and number from somewhere, so I started hooking up with him every so often trying to teach him about computers, and then I went on tour with him. What was Mentor's initial view of how Faith No More interacted with each other? From my vantage point, at least initially, there was very little interaction. They all kept their separate places, but that seemed like a good thing, actually. They weren't this band and that was their only identity. They were normal people. I was generally excited to tour and travel and it was cool to find out that they weren't what you think rock bands are. Most of the other personalities I met were people I didn't have anything in common with and I wasn't interested in having any sort of relationship with them on a personal level. As the Angel Dust tour progressed, it became blatantly obvious that longtime guitarist Jim Martin was not going to remain in the band. When did Mentor start to think about the vacancy? Well, there wasn't a lot of communication between us about how things were working out. Jim was gone and they were sending out tapes. I got a tape and did some noodling on it, sent it back, they said they liked it and that was pretty much that. I figured they'd make their own decision based on whatever criteria they had. Stone Temple Pilots, Blind Melon and Helmet had an all-star cast on a forthcoming Led Zeppelin tribute LP. Led Zeppelin Tribute is the rather inspired title of the record dedicated to the Brit Rock Legends, which is released during early March by Atlantic and has been compiled with the full cooperation of band supremos Jimmy Page and Robert Plant. Led Zeppelin have just been enrolled into the much revered Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in New York. All three surviving members of the band, Page Plant and bassist John Paul Jones, were present as Aerosmith, Stephen Tyler and Joe Perry inducted the band at the 10th annual ceremony. Pearl Jam's Eddie Vedder, meanwhile, inducted superstar singer Neil Young. Metallica have been hard at work writing their sixth LP and are set to begin recording this month. Following last year's Shit Hits the Sheds US tour, drummer Lars Ulrich and guitar growler James Hetfield have been at Ulrich's home studio trawling through ideas and riff tapes. The burning question on every Metalli fan's lips, however, is what the follow-up to 1992's self-titled LP will sound like. I don't know what it's really going to sound like, states Ulrich. We listen to the same old shit. We listen to Finn Lizzy, ACDC, I really like Caius. I listen to Alice in Chains a lot. It's not that different. It's not like we've discovered this totally new thing. You become kind of set in your old ways. I'm not saying that it's going to be fresh, but the same things still sound right to me the way they did when we made the Black Album. So far, in these early stages of piecing the LP together, the only certainty concerning the next Metalli platter is the band's decision to record at home. We've never made a record at home, comments Lars. We're going to record the next record back in San Francisco, so that will be different. Most bands try to replicate the environment they were in last time around. Is Bob Brock, the man behind the last multi-platinum platter, likely to produce again? 
yeah, definitely confirms Lars. We hadn't really seen Bob for a while, to be honest with you. A couple of months ago, he came down to the Bay Area and me and James hung out with him and drank beers all day. It was like the old days again. He still hasn't fully recovered from making our last album. ACDC are the hot favourites to headline Donington this year, and it could be their last ever UK show. Kerrang understands that the Aussie Rockmasters are now the preferred choice to top the bill for a record fourth time at the 95 Monsters of Rock Festival, although as yet there has been no official word. ACDC have traditionally been seen as steady crowd pullers, and with top international acts like Bon Jovi, Metallica and Guns N' Roses all apparently out of the picture, the Aussie stars may well be just the ticket. Done into 95 though, no date has yet been set, it's rumoured to be taking place on August the 19th. Terrorvision, the Brit stars who swept up in the recent Kerrang! Readers poll, will release a new single through Total Vegas EMI on March the 6th. The Yorkshire Forsen's next single will be a re-recording of the song Some People Say. The original can be found on their super-selling album How To Make Friends And Influence People, and it has been produced by Steve Osborne. But why this new version? It was other people's suggestion, admits bassist Lee Mark Lou. We always uh, have been into that track as a potential single, but some people thought that although it worked live, the original recording just didn't do it justice. To be honest, we didn't want to take another single from the How To Make Friends album. There have been four already. And then we looked at our schedule for 95 and realised that we couldn't hope to get anything new out until the summer. So when it was suggested that we do a new recording and were offered certain sweetness to do it, we agreed. Ugly Kid Joe, the missing in action Yank Brat Pack who scored a massive 1992 hit with the infuriatingly catchy Everything About You are currently locked away recording their second album. A house in Santa Yanez, part of the greater Santa Barbara region of Southern California is the recording base for the band. It's a very special house which legendary Hollywood singer-actor Dean Martin used to own. The previous landlord was James Stewart. There were some parties back then that reportedly make these modern day rock and roll affairs look boring. Ugly Kid Joe singer Whitfield Crane, it has to be said, is a man who understands and fits into the aura of the enormous sprawling Spanish style ranch where Ugly Kid Joe have just completed um, the lion's share of work on their forthcoming album Menace to Sobriety produced by Gigi Garth Richardson. They initially wanted to stick us in LA, laughs Crane, the soul sucking machine that is LA. It's dangerous for me because I know a lot of people there and can get sidetracked hanging out. I'd heard about people going into houses to record and it appealed to me, especially when put against the variables of LA, the smog, the people, the bullshit studios. I really wanted to separate myself. This place has such a cool vibe. The people who own this house wanted to know who we were. Unfortunately, their teenage kids said, fuck yeah, ugly kid Joe, cool. You cannot discount the kids vote. So here we are, and I don't know if I would have let us in here. Senseless Things vocalist guitarist Mark Kedd sensationally stepped into the vacant Wild Hearts six-string slot last week, but only for an appearance on Top of the Pops. The workaholic Twickenham guitar terrors are poised to unleash their fourth album, Taking Care of Business, just as Kedd is busy fending off persistent rumours that he's been asked to join the stroppy rockers full-time. On the face of it, the charismatic 24-year-old would certainly seem to be the kind of guitarist they'd be looking for, and it appears that the Wild Hearts' management have expressed interest in his services. Ked's cackles, I've never smashed anyone's office up, so I'm not sure I'd be suitable, but right now, he's far more interested in the impending release of business. The album, out on February the 13th via Epic, shows the senseless things at their heaviest yet, combining the poised songwriting skill of the likes of Soul Asylum with the flair of Keds' current favourite outfit, The Who. Bon Jovi have finally announced details of the much-anticipated fifth date on their UK summer stadium tour. 
The extra show will be at the National Ground Cardiff Arms Park and will take place on Thursday, June 22nd. Tickets are priced at £22.50 reserved seating and £21 general admission. They're on sale now and are available from the following credit card hotlines. I'm not going to read all those numbers out. As Corrine went to press this week, there still had been no confirmation of the third band on the bill, which so far features the headliners and special guest Van Halen. Thunder are strongly rumoured to be the main contenders for the third on the bill slot. There are expected to be four bands at each show. Records news and Butthole Surfers, the balmy US cult combo, issue an album titled The Whole Truth and Nothing But through Trance Syndicate Records on March 27th. This features both demo and live material. Fans of the band might recognise this as the same album which was available last year in bootleg form. Trance Syndicate have now remastered the disc but kept the same artwork. The soundtrack to the movie Clarks is set to be issued during early May by Columbia. The track listing includes Can't Even Tell Soul Asylum, Big Problem Corrosion of Conformity, Golden Smog Jesus Lizard, Get Me Wrong Alice in Chains, Leaders and Followers Bad Religion, Violent Mood Swing Stabbing Westward and Killed a Sex Player Girls Against Boys. Hanoi Rocks, the classic Finnish rockers, who of course feature Mike Monroe as their frontman, are to have a box set issued through Essential Castle during March. It will feature tracks drawn from four Hanoi albums, Bangkok Shocks, Saigon Shakes, Back to Mystery City, Oriental Beat and Self-Destruction Blues. All of these albums will also be reissued uh, individually. Monster Magnet's new album, Dopes to Infinity, will now be issued by A&M on March 13th, coinciding with a major British tour from the US combo. A new single, Negasonic Teenage Warhead, will be released at the end of February. Offspring, the multi-platinum Orange County Punks, issue a new single, Self-Esteem, through Epitaph on February the 13th. Robocop, the soundtrack to the forthcoming TV series due to be aired on Sky during March, will be released by Castle Communications Essential Records on February the 27th. Among those tracks featured on this release will be a future to this life performed by Joe Walsh and Lita Ford, Guilty of Life, Joe Walsh and Frankie Miller, Fire and Brimstone, Joe Walsh, Shoots and Ladders, Dave Edmonds and Joe Walsh, Flannel Jacket, EJ Walters and Stuff You Gotta Watch by The Band. Shyhad, the New Zealand industrialists, have now changed the title of their forthcoming single to You Again. It will be put out by Noise on February the 27th. An album, as yet untitled, will follow on March the 20th. Tour news and at the gates, the Swedish death metal mob play Norwich Oval February the 21st, Bradford Rio's 23rd, Tunbridge Wells Forum 24th and London Camden Dublin Castle on the 26th. Support on all dates will be Belgium's Ancient Rites and Swedes Seance. The band will be making a personal appearance at Metalhead in Camden High Street on February the 26th at 4pm. Sensor have now rearranged those dates postponed last November. These are Cardiff University February the 13th, Warwick University 14th, Nottingham Rock City 15th, London Kentish Town Forum 17th, Manchester Academy 18th. Support act will be Skunk and Anty. Tickets purchased for the original dates are valid. Warrior Soul, the Malfi US outfit, follow up their recent successful support slot on the Almighty Tour with a headlining tour of the UK. Dates are Wolverhampton, Wolfram Hall, March 24th, Nottingham Rock City 25th, Glasgow Garage 26th, Bradford Rio's 28th, Liverpool Crazy House 29th, Buckley Tivoli 30th and London Astoria 31st. Support act on this track will be Apes, Pigs and Spacemen. Weezer, the rising US mob play Birmingham Edwards number 8 February the 22nd, Manchester Boardwalk 23rd, 
Glasgow King Tut's Wawa Hut on the 24th and Sheffield Leadmill on the 25th. Mayhem America, the hottest US news as it happens. We begin this week with Don K in New York. Vernon Reed, guitarist, composer and band leader has announced the breakup of Living Colour, the group he founded 10 years ago. I have not made this decision overnight, he said. I've been struggling with it and searching my soul for well over a year. But at the same time that Living Colour's sense of unity and purpose was growing weaker and fuzzier, I was finding more and more creative satisfaction in my solo projects. Finally, it became obvious that I had to give up the band and move on. Living Colour were founded in 1984 and released three albums and an EP for Epic between 88 and 93. The Pole Topping Rockers won two Grammy Awards for Cult of Personality and Time's Up. Vernon and the other members of Living Colour, Corey Glover, Will Calhoun and Doug Wimbish are all pursuing individual solo projects. So how have Pearl Jam been keeping busy while battling with Ticketmaster and not touring? Well, they did a pro-choice benefit show in Washington DC along with Neil Young and L7. And they showed up at the annual Rock and Roll Hall of Fame dinner in New York where Eddie Vedder gave the induction speech for Neil Young. Eddie, the only presenter to speak without written remarks, also gave the funniest, warmest and most spontaneous speech of the evening, at one point threatening a food fight with Ticketmaster who some genius placed at the table next to Pearl Jam's. As for the rest of the dinner, it was occasionally poignant, but mostly dull. At least on television, for those of us not royal enough to get into the thing, the Pearl Jam Neil Young Jam had its moments of inspiration, but the eagerly awaited Led Zepp reunion, the three surviving members plus Jason Bonham on drums and Aerosmith, Steven Tyler and Joe Perry has added attractions proved a dud. Robert Plant tried to out-twirl Tyler and just looked rather poncy. Whilst their mini set consisted of drawn-out blues jams reminiscent of the worst excesses of the song remains the same. King Diamond recently held a show at the limelight. By all accounts, the King made it through the performance, but was puking his guts out the rest of the night with a bad case of flu. It's going around the rotting apple, and I guess that fresh Texas air King resides in Dallas has lowered his resistance to the poisonous New York atmosphere. Way over in Australia, controversial US star Courtney Love has landed herself in deep shit over an alleged incident during a flight from Brisbane to Melbourne. Details are sketchy, but it seems that Courtney is alleged to have abused a member of staff during the trip and wound herself up in court. More news on Courtney's latest antics soon. Poor L7. The all-gal LA troupe will now not be releasing new single Stuck Here Again in the UK, not after the master tapes for the B-side were lost in the mail. Their song Bless It, which was the intended B-side, is currently missing in action. But if it pops up next to you on the bus or in the back of a taxi, do mail it to London Records, eh? Finally, congrats to Biohazard's Evan Seinfeld and his girlfriend Eleanor on the arrival of their son, Samuel Solomon Seinfeld. We now join Lisa Johnson in LA. Foo Fighters' Dave Grohl's new project have apparently confirmed a lineup that does include ex-Germs man Pat Smear and a rhythm section from the recently defunct sub-pop act Sunny Day Real Estate. The band made a trip to Los Angeles where they met an unknown number of interested labels. Rumours speculate that Foo Fighters will eventually settle with Capitol Records, whose president Gary Gersh originally signed Nirvana to DGC Geffen. No deals have been finalised as yet. Success story of the year thus far. Wax, the LA neo-punk outfit, fall into a category somewhere between Green Day and Weezer, and theirs is a tale indeed. Ahead of their time, this bouncy four-piece signed to Virgin subsidiary Charisma in 92 and released their debut album What Else Can We Do Through Caroline. 
They then toured for a solid year in a smelly van before recording their follow-up for Virgin in the autumn of 93. Whoever was passing out the brains that day missed the Virgin A&R department who dropped wax shortly after the album's completion, not anticipating the new wave of power pop punk. Suddenly, washed up before they got their hands dirty, a year later Wax finally released 13 unlucky numbers on their own label, Side One. Indie Cargo agreed to distribute the album, and now it looks like Wax could be Cargo's biggest selling act ever. Before the record's January 95 release, radio stations across the country started playing the group track California, and Wax quickly became the most requested act behind R.E.M. in cities like L.A., Chicago and Detroit. But the success doesn't end there. On February the 14th, they begin a US tour opening for the Mighty Mighty Boss Tones and Face to Face. To top it off, I ran into the bassist that the world famous Viper Room and he said the band had signed a deal with Interscope that day. Hurrah for the underdog. Moral of the story, if you want something done right, do it yourself. Beavis, <laughs> you've never been to a concert in your life. Shut up! We now come to concerts, and this past weekend I went to a concert. And when I say concert, I of course mean a gig. Some friends of mine were putting on a gig, um, it was a Tony Hawk's um, soundtrack cover band, which sounds kind of ridiculous, but when you actually go back and look at uh, some of the songs from that Tony Hawk's soundtrack, there's actually some classic stuff on there. So I'd planned to go out for dinner with some friends, and I did do that. Um, I only found out about this gig on Saturday night, and on the way home, I texted my friend and he said, look, come along, I can get you in. I was like, okay, it was a sold out gig. So yeah, I wasn't being a cheapskate. He said, come along, I can get you in. So I did, I turned up, uh, I walked into the room, they were covering Superman by Goldfinger. I heard a Less Than Jake cover. They did Rise Above Black Flag and then I left. It was bloody brilliant. People were throwing beer all over the place. Um, loads and loads of like pogoing and moshing and people getting like smashed into each other. I tried to buy two beers, couldn't because they weren't accepting cards. It was, it was just, it was pretty, um, it was it was fun, I'll tell you what, it was one of those gigs where you, you kind of walk in, you haven't got a clue what to expect, and it was just like uh, walking into a time warp of people having a great time listening to a, listening to a band. Yeah, obviously they were doing covers, uh, but everyone knew the words to every song. It was really, really fun. Anyway, here we are, this week's concerts. The first concert reviewed this week is Terrorvision, live at the University Sunderland, Thursday, January the 19th. This one is reviewed by Liam Charles, and this gets our electrocution out of five, five out of five. The BBC Invasion is a two-headed dog and no mistake. You can't get parked for big grey vans and there's more security than at your average Middle East peace summit. And instead of the usual sprint for the finish, Terravision deliver two half-hour-ish sets plus interval. On the other hand, ticket prices are pegged to a measly three quid and the sound is crystal clear from the moment Alice What's The Matter kicks off the first set with a bang. Until Oblivion winds up the second, sending about half the crowd on their way with a smell of new t-shirt in their nostrils. Not that this is your regular rock crowd, this being a college gig and all. What Terrorvision have here are the indie kids they captured at the Reading Festival last year and boy are they into this. They have their own bouncing dance, a modification of the pogo for the caring sharing 90s. There's no aggro whatsoever involved and you don't need to be tangled up with a human spaghetti down the front to join in. People are bouncing to pretend best friend in the balcony, discotheque wreck at the bar and my house in the toilets. Terrorvision are perfect for this because you can bounce to every one of their songs, except maybe for next single some people say. The kids are not sure what to do about that one and free lighters thrust skywards prove that old hippies can dig Terrorvision. Adaptability rules, though and when the chorus comes along they start to bounce slowly. Shit up proclaims Tony Wright referring both to audience and band who are by now quite literally steaming. 
Mark Gates' guitar playing is precise and unfussy. The same goes for bassist Lee Marklu. And the day Shutty plays a drum solo is the day Terravision are finished. They may have achieved uh, just about everything with their dazzling songs in 94, but on the strength of the approval they meet tonight, it seems that all Terravision have done in relation to their ultimate success is pull the skin off a very large rice pudding. Album number three could go anywhere, but tonight there are a thousand votes for more pop fizz. And if, as rumoured, they do record with Jellyfish producer Albie Galutum, Terravision's next will be the mother of all pop albums. The next concert is Slayer, Biohazard and Machine Head. Wow. Live at the Shrine Auditorium, Los Angeles, Sunday, January the 15th. Uh, reviewed by Stefan Chirazzi, this gets static out of five, three out of five. The LA crowd are sluggish. How many of them are here for the show or the image of the show? The fight's breaking out and a police presence indicating a potential repeat of the riot suggests that many audience folk just wanted to wear the night as a scar. Machine Head, as mobile and assortive as ever, suffered with this weird audience. Although they impressed with yet another impassioned display of young, angry energy, the crowd never quite got it past the first 10 rows. Even when Rob Flynn pointed out that the Davidian video can't get played on MTV because of the line let freedom ring with a shotgun blast, excuse bad message, and led a vulgar chorus, the response was not spectacular. Hard work for a band who are always going to find this lot tough. Most likely because of their greater live experience, Biohazard stomped on stage fully prepared for this passive audience. Bobby Hamble roared at the crowd, Evan Seinfeld announced welcome to New York, and off they went for 40 exhilarating pulsating minutes of boot-infested, crunch-heavy hardcore, daring the crowd to sit still. If you stuck this lot on a water treadmill, you'd have enough hydroelectric power to run Bradford for a year. Billy to Bobby to Evan to Billy to Evan to Bobby. They never stop moving around across, over, under, always pausing to give a huge grimace or motion that aggro coursing through their veins. Even taking time out to bring out their Cypress Hill mate Sendog for a gang chorus of how it is. Biohazard succeeded in getting the zombie youth to get up and move. Slayer still have perhaps the greatest metal opener in history. The floor tom boom, the red lights and the head whipping guitars introducing raining blood. When Slayer are this tight, this much on their game, it's like watching an eagle on the swoop and it doesn't get any mellower except of course in the pit. Bugger me, this is Slayer. I've seen this band called Riot and here they were, hometown show, band on form, revving up. Yes, I was bloody well disappointed, not in Slayer, who have found their heart and soul in backseat driver Paul Bostaff, but in the crowd. You lot from Dublin to Doncaster, from Bristol to Brixton, from Glasgow to Gwent gave as good as you got according to Machine Head, who still haven't got over it all. Trust me, you'd have been disgusted with tonight's audience who managed to cast an ugly, fetid atmosphere over what was technically a great show. Fuck LA. Deep in the heart of New Jersey, there's a new wave of British heavy metal reunion going down, and who better to report on the metal mayhem that ensued when Raven and Anvil hit town, the Megaforce legend Johnny Zed. So this review is for Raven, Anvil and Bomb Squad, live at the Birchill Club Old Bridge, New Jersey on Friday, January the 13th, and reviewed by Johnny Zed, this gets a electrocution out of 5, 5 out of 5. How many bands played the 1994 Foundations Forum in California? Seem like thousands, but out of all those new bands, only Machine Head and Korn seem deserving of a good future. It wasn't until Raven hit the stage that I find myself doing something I thought I'd forgotten how to do. Headbanging. I was raging. 
I haven't felt this good in so long. Those headbanging days of the early 80s were special and I for one miss them. It was a music I loved, a dying art, a way of life. And that night, Raven playing their first US show in six years were on it in a big way. This gave me the idea of getting together with the old bridge metal militia, a group of pals dedicated to heavy metal, dedicated to that viking spirit with fists in the air. What better way to celebrate the 13th anniversary of the first metal show that the old bridge metal militia had put on than to have Raven and Anvil and New Jersey Stalwarts Bomb Squad play one more time for old time's sake. Friday the 13th seemed an appropriate date. There was a crowd of nearly 1800 of us too, all of us wanting to say thanks for some of the greatest metal music ever. Thank you for one more night. This really was a gig for all of us to pay homage to a long gone time that was the best of all our lives. Another chance to bang the head that hadn't banged in so long. And the last review this week is for Dub War live at JB's Dudley, um, Friday, January the 20th. Reviewed by Steve BB. This gets a static out of 5, 3 out of 5. Dub War are the latest addition to the crop of decent bands from South Wales around at the moment. But whereas most of the current Welsh army tend to occupy the more accessible areas of rock and roll, Dub War goes straight for the throat with a potent mixture of ska and hardcore. Christ, Dub War even throw in a touch of acid jazz fusion, just for the hell of it. Arriving on stage complete with a genuine air raid siren which vocalist Benji operates with maniacal glee, it quickly becomes obvious that Dub War are far from mundane. Benji screams and spits into his microphone, charging around the stage like a man possessed, while guitarist Jeff Rose riffs like a proverbial bastard. Dub War are full of life, full of energy and are an explosion of pent up rage. Unfortunately, as one song becomes another and continues to sound much the same, the fatal flaw in Dub War's battle plan is exposed. While the band have talent and no shortage of adrenaline, their songwriting remains somewhat samey. It is also more than a little odd to hear ice tea style lyrics belting out by a guy with a Welsh accent. Newport might not be the most glamorous of towns, but downtown LA it most certainly is not. These niggles may endanger Dub Wars' struggle for credibility, but their eclectic musical vision can only be admired. Slightly less abrasive than Bad Brains and certainly more lively than Body Count. The band's material, such as Mental and current single Gorrit, are stronger live than on record, but several weaker numbers like Respected could do with being ironed out. Dub War, completed by the powerhouse rhythm section of bassist Richie Glover and drummer Martin Ford have already proved they ain't scared to play with anyone and everyone, and this open-mindedness already appears to have paid dividends. The debut album, due in February, will prove to be the real test. Psycho Bitches From Hell Yikes, it's those frazzled, scary, yet strangely sexy Hellhags L7. Ray Zell drools over them as they rock LA Sunset Strip. You've been really, 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 really fantastic, front girl Susie Gardner tells the Whiskey Go Go crowd. The fanny, of course, is emphasized and elongated. Nice work if you can get it, for those devoid of diplomas in wordplay. And thus, L7 wind up their recent four-day stint at the famed LA venue, which appeared to be housing the dregs of a grunge clientele waiting for the next big parade. Okay, the necessaries on L7. LA-based primal rock machine, an outfit consisting entirely of the um, fairer sex whose roots died to complement their moods go back to the mid-80s, originally on the Waycred sub-pop roster before making their major label debut on Slash in 92 with the self-explanatory logic of the classic Bricks Are Heavy. The gnarly babes promoted Bricks heavily in Blighty, but only managed a couple of gigs last year to flaunt their latest and really, 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 really non-critically acclaimed album, Hungry for Stink. 
The Big Kerrang's Chris Watts labelled its Dirt Cake Grooves a celebration of the ordinary in a Triple K review, and no bugger but yours truly gave it a place in, in a recent critic's top 20 faves of 94 either. Sob. Ah, but the girls are back in England, ravenous for Pong, with a single to flog, the lusciously lacklustre stuck here again. The bar of the Hyatt Hotel on Sunset Boulevard, where you are what you drive, Kerrang snapper Paul Harry's Etmois have just thrashed a melody maker duo at table soccer. Kerrang, Kerrang, Kerrang. When the gals drift in looking more frazzled than refried bacon. Coolest and latest is vocalist guitarist Danita Sparks, whose piece de resistance to a sullen bag lady demeanour is a Diamante Tiara. I've given a name to class and it is Danita Sparks. I had all of L7 in my hotel room, two at a time, Natch. What do you think I am? First to follow me up are currently blonde bassist Jennifer Finch and drummer Dee Placas. Jennifer flicks through Kerrang! issue 502 as she stops at the review for Hungry for Stink. I mentioned that it's hardly glowing. At this, Dee who is peering over Jennifer's shoulder withdraws sharply to her seat as if she were a vampire suddenly confronted with a crucifix. I don't want to see that she shudders in a strangely sexy lazy tone. Part Catwoman, part scrummy Fenella fielding on Carry On Screaming. I prompt Jennifer to review the review. To hell with my devilishly planned opening gambit of why the L7 drop their strides on TV shows and throw tampons into crowds. And what's it like being in an all-girl band? This person, she starts, feisty and husky voiced, says we should be more sarcastic and fun. Then he says that some songs on the record are messy firecrackers, which I assume is a compliment. I think this person is neither in hate or in love with the album. I think he's in love and in hate with our press image. You know, I don't need to read these reviews because I'm critical enough, I listen to the record and go fuck, stuck here again, I play that bassline so much more wicked now than I ever could have imagined when we were in the studio. So what do you think of the endless rock hag harpy descriptions that the rock press are always throwing at you? There are certain cool words in the English language that relate to women, Jennifer shrugs. You know, that don't just deal with sexuality but can be read. I think that being called a rock hag is a compliment. Wheel in the next psycho bitch duo. Susie, she of the deranged baby doll stare, there is nothing she doesn't know about penile implants. And Danita, blunt, cynical, scary, the dark one lies across my bed. Foxcore, she mutters, which preceded Riot Girl, right? There is a queasy silence. Susie, Foxcore, that was before. Danita, Fox Girl, Susie, Foxnort, Riot Core. But what's in the name? Jennifer told me I should ask you about the band's body ailments. Danita, I have cavity problems and a rotting undercarriage. Susie chuckles at this. What do I have? I'm just going insane. Insane in the membrane. But what's new? I tell them the album is like a postcard from beyond the edge. Intensely personal stuff. Yet most reviews didn't dig deeper than the garage raw and gutsy production. Donita. Some people come to interview us after hearing the record once that afternoon. That's a drag. I just don't read them anymore. It hurts my feelings too much. It shouldn't carry any weight, but somehow seeing something in print, it does. Journalist AI Tup, if you don't get anything from questioning my sanity, you obviously haven't ever been. Questioning your sanity finishes Danita, dryly. She stares off into her own private somewhere. Danita's penning of questioning and baggage are the well-documented results of a personal low she reached last year. She declines to elaborate too much in interviews. I fish, but no gory big box quotables for me. L7 ain't your archetypal sunset strip rockers, but LA is the gal's home and the whiskey a regular gig. Danita, we didn't play the whiskey till we were already pretty big. We used to play these uh, punk rock dives that don't even exist anymore. 
We would have played a bigger place, but we kind of like the idea of playing a small place. Even though it's not as cool as we thought it would be, it's just an uptight atmosphere on the Sunset Strip. Too cool, blinks Susie. Pseudo dumb, I think. So what's happening in LA these days? Susie. We don't know. We haven't been around. We've been touring a lot and before that we were making our record. I guess something's happening. People are playing at new clubs that I've never been to. Who? What kind of bands? We don't know, they echo. Danita sounding like she doesn't particularly care. It's really weird, Susie chuckles. We're like clueless, cloistered in our own little world. So how does a London audience compare to an LA one? Danita. LA used to be very jaded and people would kind of just stand there. Then during the flannel shirt years, the crowds were just going wild. Now it seems to have taken another step backwards. People are just kind of jaded again. It's tough for an out-of-town band to play here. So she assesses in her infinite goddess-like wisdom. London is much wilder than LA. We now come to communication and the letter of the week this week is a love letter to Morat. I'm fed up reading the bollocks Morat spouts these days. Will the guy ever get off his pedestal? He berates a super bad religion for signing to a major label while conveniently ignoring the fact that one of his fave bands, sick of it all, have signed to East West. In case he's forgotten, Bad Religion are the band formed by a group of 15 year olds in 1980 to protest against Reaganism. How punk can you get? And without them, Epitaph and much of the current Californian scene, including Offspring, NoFX, Pennywise, Rancid and Total Chaos, would not exist. So do us a favour, Morat. And stop slagging off bands who have done 5 billion times more for punk than you could ever hope to do. Chris, London. We've given Morat your address so he can come round and discuss the matter further. And bring your Kerrang cap. Editor. The Pandora Peroxide cartoon strip in Kerrang 529 was like a breath of fresh air. I'm sick and tired of Axel and Slash's constant bickering. And it's about time someone told them to bloody grow up. I hope you've sent them a copy of it. Perhaps they'd realise how a lot of fans are beginning to feel. They should either sort out their differences and shut up, or die as a group and get on with their own projects. Either way, please give us some peace, a disgruntled heavy metalist from Maidstone. I have just returned from the best gig of my life. Sick of it all at Bradford Rio. What a performance. They played 25 songs, the crowd went mental, and I couldn't believe how good they were. Sick of it all will be massive this year and deservedly so because they must be one of the hardest working New York hardcore bands around. And to all the Green Day fans out there who think they're into punk, check out Sick of it all and shit your pants. Let's hope they get a full tour soon. A free spirit, Beric upon Tweed. So where were Kerrang's favourite Butcher Than Butch, Heavier Than Now cover stars, Pantera in the Critics Choice Top 25 Albums and 1994 Readers Poll Best Album category? Isn't it about time someone admitted that Far Beyond Driven is completely unlistenable? Phil from London. Gagging for a shagging. Please make my 1995 and print a picture of the most shaggable, gorgeous female on the planet, Dee Placas from L7. This cuddly sex kitten sure makes a monster out of me. Phil Liner from Essex. Do you realise that you've had Pamela Anderson in every issue of Kerrang! in the past two months? You do have female readers too, you know, and we have no desire to see her or other rock chicks in bikinis with their silicon tits sticking out. It's fucking degrading. If you must have her in every issue, give us girls some half-naked men to look at. Tony Wright, Floyd London, Ricky Warwick or Sebastian Back would do for starters. The remains of Tony Wright's hair from Surrey. 
So crazy pixie issue 529, you're sad because Megadeth aren't coming to your town and you have to travel to see them elsewhere. You don't know how fortunate you are. We, the metalers of Ulster, are the ones who should be complaining. In the past 18 months we've had a total of 7 gigs here, some on the same night. In December, we were desperate enough to consider paying 100 quid each just to go and see Cradle of Filth. Actual ticket price, 4 quid. Loads of bands like Obituary, Bolt Thrower, Cannibal Corpse, Paradise Lost to name a few have toured the UK but never bothered to visit their legions of followers in Ulster. A few years ago, they might have had an excuse, but now the troubles are over, so get on the fucking boat, get over here and give us something to smile about. IH and RB, banger. Why do people feel the need to write to Kerrang to slag off a band or an artist? There are lots of bands I don't like, but I'm not so self-opinionated or narrow-minded that I think mine is the only view worth taking notice of. These people should get their heads out of their asses and smell what it is they're talking. And if anyone wants to argue about it, don't write to Kerrang. Get my address from their office and come and see me, the Brothers Grimm from Kent. P.S. I'm six foot tall and built like Henry Rollins and my brother makes me look small. I think the Wild Hearts' behaviour was fucking disgraceful. Maybe if the Kerrang article that pissed them off was about something major, their actions would have been forgivable, but it was insignificant and not worth losing their heads over. Ginger, you're a hot-headed fucker. Bam, Stiddy, then CJ, now this. I can't believe you're the same bloke who wrote Love Shit or TV Tam. Songs that express the feelings of this generation, and I thought Danny and Richie were the mature ones. Kerrang, please ignore the Wild Hearts from now on. CJ's P45, County Antrim. I think the Wild Hearts' recent visit to your office shows that they are very much together and united in what they think and do. Long may the Wild Hearts rule. Andrea, Hertfordshire. The Wild Hearts trashed the Kerrang offices then. Well, I think both parties have a lesson to learn here. Firstly, Ginger and Co must accept, as Kerrang reader Ross Wilson said, that here in the UK we have freedom of speech. And if that ugly twat can't accept criticism, he should get out of the spotlight and get a real job. Secondly, Kerrang should ditch its recently acquired gift for speculation. All you do these days is bring us patchy bits of gossip that you claim sources close to the band gave you. You always do it with Guns N' Roses and last week it was ACDC. I think you hear it from a guy in the pub. So that's it, the final verdict. Ginger probably sympathises with governments in China and endorses censorship. And Kerrang is on the way to becoming the National Enquirer of Metal. The original nutter, Newport. Shoot on curlies. We'd just been to see television playing Sunderland and they were fucking brilliant. Cheers for a great gig. The pics, the signings, the chat, everything. Naomi and Clay, London. Question. Sammy Hagar, Bette Midler. Have you ever seen them together? Just a thought. Seb back his sweaty bits. Ill communication. As mentioned at the start of this episode, there is no more poster power, even though Kerrang said they are still going to put posters in the magazine. <laughs> I'm not sure why they've decided to take it out and not call it poster power anymore but still put posters in very odd choice anyway let's move on to singles the singles this week are reviewed by mike peak and we start with the black crows and their single high head blues this gets 5ks there is a fridge atop a thousand year old ice cap in the bleakest recesses of the antarctic the beer inside is cold in a way that cross-channel swimmers have only previously known. Yet still, it is not as cool as the Black Crows, or indeed, this new single. It's a dozen times more sophisticated as twice as hard and as important to the rock scene as Metallica or Guns N' Roses. Joyous. Bracket with their single presents 5.35. This gets 3Ks. 
No band, maybe with the exception of Green Day, could possibly sound more like Green Day. You just know Brackett's press officer wants to shout, hey, this sounds just like Green Day, but mumbles something about punk and cool instead. Not a bad single by any stretch of the trousers, but these Californians are no more necessary than patterned blue roll. Caius with their single Gardenia, this gets 4Ks. Super cool groove rock from the gods of stoner metal. Gardenia is a clever anagram of I drank an E, which must have like loads of druggy connotations and it takes your head to all kinds of weirdo places that it probably didn't want to go to. As does new single cut, a uh, sandpiper, which is ha huh, huh, as abrasive as the Caius machine gets. You'll get the idea even better at this week's live shows at which Caius will undoubtedly shred. Rancid, with their single Roots Radical, this gets 2Ks. For all their studs, leather Mohicans and general punk rockness, Rancid hailed as the new savers of yank punk rock sound about as brutal and in your face as shampoo. Uh oh, I'm in trouble. Ween, with their single Voodoo Lady, this gets 3Ks. Under the Bridge meets 10cc's Dreadlock Holiday. There's not wrong with that, but it's zero metal. A guitar that fizzes like an out-of-date sherbet dab, but a groove most rock bands would kill for. They're American, they're weird, and they're better than a rusty nail up the arse. Uh, hello, Ween. Single of the week this week is I Alone by Live. This gets 5Ks. Sometimes you can believe in your old buddies at Kerrang, and we wasn't kidding when we said that Live were the shit. Still think we're taking the piss, eh? 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 I Alone is a big time classic American radio rock with a metal crash and an indie off beat. And of its type, there's none better. Absolutely, still, they can't seem to accept the fact that their first LP was bollocks and insist on churning out one of their earliest cuts, Pain Lies on the Riverside, on the B-side. We now come to this week's cover stars, Trouble and Strife. Two years ago, Luke Morley and Danny Bowles were at each other's throats, and Thunder were finished. Now the chirpy Cockney geezers are buddies again, but can Thunder survive the grunge and punk explosions? Paul Rees investigates. A Soho Bar, 5pm. Guitarist Luke Morley, fresh from supervising the edit of Thunder's next promo video, arrives in a taxi. We chat for some 40 minutes by an open fireplace. Singer Danny Bowles turns up at 6pm for a separate interview. Luke Morley exits approximately 10 minutes later. If Morley had dropkicked Bowles before strolling out of the room in a huff, this chain of events would have been far more exciting, only he doesn't. Instead, Luke bids Danny a cheery hello, Danny bids Luke a cheery hello, and both of them look as happy as two peas in a pod. The war of words that threatened to tear Thunder apart throughout most of last year is over. It started with the rumour that Morley was contemplating an offer to join either Coverdale Page or Whitesnake. It gathered momentum when Bowles contacted Kerrang to accuse his six-string colleague of all manner of diabolical deeds, and it apparently fizzled out in time for the South London Plus One Swede outfit to record their third studio album, the not-so-aptly titled Behind Closed Doors. So did the local residents of Deptford awaken one morning to the sight of a chirpy vocalist and a chirpy guitarist charging across a local hillside to embrace beneath the sunrise? Nope, there was nothing like that, shrugs Bowles. In fact, Nothing was officially said, it just kind of drifted on. We had a big problem when it really kicked off because we were already committed to doing a Danny and the Doo-Wops tour, Thunder's jokey spin-off band. At one point, I told everybody that there was no way I could do it. The whole vibe about the Doo-Wop thing is a good laugh, so there was no way we could do it if we weren't going to talk to each other. Anyway, 
Our manager rang us both and said, you're going to speak to each other. If you don't, you're going to shortchange yourselves and more importantly, the audience. In that situation, you suddenly have to think about other people. It gives you a jolt. Despite being in Bell's words one of the most difficult things we've ever done, the Danny and the Doo-Wops tour finally pulled Thunder's prime movers back together. But how had they come to this perilous state in the first place? They were, after all, schoolboy chums, boozing buddies, and not on the surface the type of geezers you'd expect to find engaged in a very public form of fisticuffs. Just to put the record straight, I'll tell you exactly what happened, states Morley. When Coverdale Page were booking an American tour, they were thinking of taking out another guitar player. So they called me to see if I'd do it on a temporary basis for a couple of months. I was flattered to be asked, but I rang back and said there was no way I could do it because I was writing the next Thunder album. In the end, they didn't do the American tour anyway, but the most hurtful thing about it all to me was that people thought I was considering leaving Thunder. I mean, I started the band. Musically, it's my group because the band plays my songs. I work with a guy who's the best singer of his type in the world. Everyone's a great musician and they're all lovely people. I'm perfectly happy. Why would I consider leaving? Well, money? I've got loads of money, he exclaims. I have. I've earned far more money than I really need. We've sold maybe three quarters of a million records in total. And if you write songs, that's a lot of money. But that wouldn't have been my motivation. It never has been. Morley's explanation sounds entirely credible, but Danny Bells for one was quick to smell a rat. In hindsight, it was the worst possible thing I could have done, because it seriously rubbed Luke up the wrong way, he says of his now infamous outburst to Kerrang. It was a very calculated move on my part. I thought if I did something like that, he'd have to talk to me, but he didn't, and that was the most infuriating part. It seems very bizarre now, almost surreal. It was bloody stupid, totally and utterly stupid, but you don't always do logical things when your mind is unbalanced. I was having a hard time on a lot of levels. I don't want to go into too much detail about what they were, but in a way I think it was inevitable. My state of mind was such that I was very susceptible to all the rumors. You know, I actually had a breakdown of sorts. I wasn't locked up in a straitjacket, but I was on a certain amount of medication and having sympathetic conversations with men whilst lying on a long chair. I'm a working class kid, and the idea of sitting around and telling somebody else your problems is a very difficult one to get your head around. You think only rich people go to psychiatrists because everybody else is too busy surviving. But although it was a very miserable and difficult period for both of us, it was good to go through. It sorted a lot of things out. While I was pulling my hair out and hating the world, I had a very good chance to get a lot of things straight in my head. I've made a few changes in my life, and as a result, I think things are better than they were. I don't think you can enter into any type of durable relationship without having a few ups and downs, sniffs Morley. But you go through them and you come out the other side. Myself and Danny have had rows in the past and will probably have more in the future. As well as being very different people, our lives have moved in different ways, and we've had to kind of adjust to each other. He's still my best friend. I was his best man at his wedding, and he'll probably be at mine, if anybody's stupid enough to marry me. Once they wiped the tears away from their eyes, Bells and Morley hooked up with guitarist Ben Matthews, bassist Mikael Hogland, and drummer Harry James to lay down behind closed doors in Atlanta, Georgia, and Los Angeles, California. It was marvellous, gushes Bells. Spiritually, it was as close to the first album as we could have got. Everybody was really pleased with the music. That said, Thunder have been away for more than two years. In that time, grunge has come and gone, punk has come too, and by popular consent, the musical climate couldn't be less friendly for a re-emerging trad rock band. So for the first time in their history, Thunder are, to the critics at least, more underdogs than contenders. Or, as the band themselves would have it, the knives are out. Most of the rock press are quite supportive, but a lot of them are perhaps concerned that we didn't make a bigger noise worldwide, opines Bells. Maybe everyone's thinking we can't survive after two years away. 
Fact is, the album's not even out yet and no one knows how it's going to do. The press don't want to go steaming in saying Thunder are back and they'll have no fucker by the record. They'd look like cunts, so they'll wait and see. We're confident we've made a good record, the only record we could have made and I actually believe wholeheartedly that it'll sell really well. In six months time, if I'm hanging by a noose from a tree somewhere, then you can drive by and say, ha, fuck you. Ultimately, it doesn't matter what I think or the press thinks. It's down to what the punters think, offers Morley. They have the all-important vote, and it's the geezer who works in the factory and goes shopping at the end of the week for his one CD, who's the only critic I'll ever listen to. Which is just as it should be, but from a vile, verminous and good-for-nothing rock press perspective, Behind Closed Doors is very few people's idea of a great record. It's nothing more than another Thunder album, albeit less instant than Backstreet Symphony and shorter on Todger shaking moments and laughing on Judgment Day. Solid, yes, but a global blockbuster in waiting? No. In addition, it's currently awaiting a home in America, following the band's unceremonious departure from their US label Geffen at the arse end of 94. Basically, we made the record with John Kolodna, former Geffen A&R guru, explains Bells. We all knew that he was the key. If he was confident about a particular record, he would spread that optimism throughout the company, and more often than not, the record would do well. Initially, we went to America seven or eight times with material, generally seeking his opinion. Then he was in the studio every other day. It was very much his record. But we heard rumours while we were making the record that he might be leaving Geffen. As you can imagine, we were beside ourselves. Clearly, without him, we would stand no chance at all. When we heard he was definitely leaving, my first thought was that we didn't want to put this record out on Geffen, so there was a certain amount of relief when they rang and said they didn't want to release it. Now John has gone to Colombia and we'll talk to them, because in an ideal world, we want to be where he is. I'm sure he'll come through for us. Is cracking America still the big dream? In a way, yeah, he nods. There's a certain amount of irritation, especially on my part, that we've never really been given a good shot over there. We've only done about four or five shows in America. But wherever we've played, all the audience has been in our dressing room afterwards telling us how great we were. You think to yourself, if only we had half a chance we could do this every night. Everywhere else we've played, we've made friends. It's not rocket science, it's not a difficult equation to work out. For now, Thunder will concentrate on Europe and Japan. They begin touring in late March, confidence bolstered by the sold out club joint they undertook around the UK prior to Christmas. Fuck me, we didn't know how we were going to do, gasped Morley. We were nervous, but it was great. I'd be lying if I said we didn't want to be the biggest band in the world. Every band does. But I just want to keep up what we consider to be our own reasonably high standards. You make the best record you can and play the best shows you can, and that's really it. Where that takes you is all down to the general public. They are the tide upon which we sail. And should you ever sink? We'll do what we always do. Just keep coming back, snorts bells. We're tenacious bastards. If we were going to quit, we'd have done it years ago. We've had more misery through the years than most people suffer in a lifetime. Morley cracks a wicked grin. That's why we've got the right to play the blues. Basically, we're heavy metal, aren't we? We made a record. It's so heavy, you couldn't get off the turntable. We now come to albums, and the album of the week this week is Waiting for the Punchline by Extreme. Reviewed by Dave Reynolds, this gets 4Ks. I don't know about the punchline, but the joke is that A&M have denied everyone the right to enjoy this new Extreme album until now. They will tell you that the band wasn't ready and it was all a question of timing. Yet what we have here is an album just as indulgent as anything Extreme have done, but unlike three sides to every story, their last album, it's infinitely more accessible despite lacking the commercial prowess of pornography. Waiting for the Punchline is the strongest album the Bostonians have ever recorded. If you live in Scandinavia or Japan, chances are you'll be very familiar with Extreme's opening shot across the bowels that is There Is No God, 
Released as a single in those territories last summer, Passed On Everywhere Else is a song that sets the mood. Nuno Betancourt's guitar sitting back in the mix as Gary Sharon's vocals walk over a rampant rhythm section. Cynical moves the tempo up a notch, although the sound remains earthy and organic. Bob St. John's production brings a very live feel to this album, which is captured with more purpose on Leave Me Alone, where Sharon drowns in a sea of self-pity as the central character. Such a live feel adds to the mood, the aggression, the atmosphere that extreme work up, and there's no aggression missing with Tell Me Something I Don't Know or Evangelist. Meticulously worked songs that have the pace of a dinosaur yet enable the listener to fully lose themselves in the sheer musicality of everything going on, floating along on the same cloud as the band. And Naked should find you singing the chorus loudly alongside Mr. Sharon. No extreme album would be complete without its butt kickers, hip swingers and those more famed delicate moments. To this end, No Respect and Hip Today take the honours in the groove stakes, whilst the Midnight Express, an instrumental, and Unconditionally deliver the goods elsewhere. Whilst A&M will no doubt issue the beautiful Unconditionally as a single at some point, it'd be nice to find Hip Today doing well as a 45. A great song with a catchy chorus. It holds an interesting message that Extreme certainly know all about firsthand. With Punchline, Extreme have learnt from the mistakes they've made with the last album, and if it is all a question of timing, there's no time like the present for this record to make a very big impression indeed. The next album reviewed is Box Set by Wall. Reviewed by Gordon Goldstein, this gets 4Ks. Wall continue their stint as America's most underrated scabby punk rock band, with the emphasis on rock. That is box set is a sweaty, thumping ball of beauty, ballistics and bile that builds upon the relocated to LA vocalist, guitarist, siblings, Pete and Fran Styles, 80s DC hardcore endeavours in Scream, with their famous mate Dave Grohl, and manages to make their Budspawn EP of a couple of years back seem one-dimensional by comparison. The revved up hardcore fury of Superman is Dead or Kill the Crow, propelled along by new Wallster and ex-drive-like Jehu drummer Chris Bratton, only serves to set apart the lush melodies and introspection of moments like Chances Are. Sure, there's a million outfits with guitars trading in core, aggro and class of 82 cred points, but few do it with a soul that Wall bring to the fore. How many other bands possess a secret weapon like that which lies in the pipes of Pete style? The Sam Cooke by way of Henry Rollins' warble that drifts over much of box set is what separates them. Like fellow DC natives for Gazi, much of Wall's emotional weight is shown in their response to a violent world. Spelt out in a cover of Greg Allman's God Rest Soul, a tribute to Martin Luther King, even the moody 10 minutes of guitar washes. Take a look, a song spurred by memories of a fatherless childhood is hard to walk away from untouched. A great, affecting chunk of ballistic soul. The next album reviewed is Bug Harvest by Sweaty Nipples. Reviewed by Ray Zell, this gets 3Ks. Sweaty Nipples. One has to titter at the expense of anyone stupid enough to stoop to such attention-grabbing depths for a handle. But, to the surprise of moi, the nipples ain't some sub-Maclands brigade from Barnsley, but a blistering journey into Sonics from a bunch of US screwballs. 15 singers, 10 billion drummers, samples of Go-Go, and as sharp as a titanium tack production from Rick Parashar. XCNM meets the Wild Hearts, I scribbled of this psychedelic rockery of colours. Verily, the nipples explore a garden of sound decorated with aggravated industrial talica, riffing and wacky titles too. Eyetooth Magnet, Salunatics, Zipperfish. In fact, the Sweaties should have just gone for all out head fuck overload and wiped out the between track gaps. Yeah, it's cool madness, but if you like music that's gonna get you humming for the rest of the day, 
This slice of oral pizza will only leave you tongue and brain tied. There's a fine line between inventive and pissing about. Sweaty nipples are it. Next up we have Deadly Sting by The Scorpions. Reviewed by Dave Reynolds, this gets 4Ks. A 15 song strong compilation from EMI, a long time home for the Scorps, compiled by former producer Dieter Dirks, which features some of the German hard rock acts most enduring compositions. Yes, we're talking the likes of Love Drive, Loving You Sunday Morning, Another Piece of Meat, Can't Live Without You and such ludicrous moments as Rock You Like a Hurricane and Bad Boys Running Wild. Deadly Sting lulls you in with a melancholic intro to Coming Home, the guitar charging in before exploding in a blitz, with Klaus Miner's familiar whining vocal well to the fore. The aforementioned Rock You Like a Hurricane brings forth images of one of the worst video clips of all time, featuring the band playing in the cage, with hordes of nubile women trying to break him. Still a good song though, as is Love Drive, where Iron Maiden derived their sound from, as is China White. For the ardent Scorpions fan, the incentive to purchase this album lies with the inclusion of the previously unreleased Edge of Time and it's here where Deadly Sting fails to gain 5Ks. The band tends to rip themselves off with an overly familiar chorus line that's too commercial for its own good. This one should not have seen the light of day. Still, it shouldn't spoil a nice bit of rock nostalgia too much. Chart Attack and number one in the Top 40 album chart is Behind Closed Doors by Thunder. Number one in the indie LPs is 1039 Smoothed Out Slappy Hours by Green Day and number one in the singles chart is Basket Case by Green Day. The readers chart this week comes from Nob and Trigger from Cranbook. Their um, chart begins 1000 Lies Machine Head, 2 Am I Evil Metallica, 3 Solitary Solitude Malaya Rage, 4 The End Complete Obituary, 5 Trapped Under Ice Metallica, 6 99 Ways to Die Megadeth, 7 Troops of Doom Sepultura, 8 Scum Napalm Death, 9 So What The Anti Nowhere League, 10 March or Die Motorhead. And Star Trek this week comes from Neil Peart of the legendary Rush. I was not expecting this. Number 1 in Neil Peart's chart, Dookie Green Day. 2 Day for Night The Tragically Hip. 3 Anything by 10,000 Maniacs. 4 Reggae Dancer in a Circle. And 5 The Brian Setzer Orchestra's The Brian Setzer Orchestra. Next week in Kerrang Back Issues. Ah, it's the heaviest tour on earth. Slayer, Biohazard, Machine Head, Fresh the US. Extreme, we slept together to make this LP. Faith no more, hear their new LP first. Slash, GNR guitarist goes solo. Plus, Head Swim, Courtney Love, Killing Joke, Megadeth, and an exclusive Blow LP offer. Thank you so much for listening. We will be back next Wednesday as usual. I hope you're all doing well and talk to you all soon. Bye for now.